Tonight, I'd like to talk about some of the powerful habit energies that prevent us from seeing clearly and acting skillfully. And they're often called the five hindrances of desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. And the Buddha had a nice analogy of a river, a powerful river of liberation. And there are five channels that are diverting, these five channels diverting the water and siphoning it off the river so that it prevents it flowing to liberation. And in the same way, they siphon off in our life and prevent us from following the purposes and values that we really want to in our lives. And another analogy I like, um, I heard from um, a colleague of ours, Gil Fronstahl, and he says they're like a black hole in the mind. And when they're strong, they kind of, the light of awareness gets kind of sucked into their gravitational field and we lose the ability to see clearly. They're like these sinkholes. And on a global scale, really it's the three poisons that Sally was talking about last night, chalacers they're called. And they've brought us really in the world to a collective precipice of using up all the resources, that's greed, of the abundance of war and terror and destruction, all the aversion that's present in the world, the hostility. And then because of our deluded sense of self and separation, um, the inability to connect with everyone in the world in an equal, fair, and just way. And so there's an urgency, really, to see the world through Dharma eyes, to see clearly without being confused and clouded by these difficult energies. And so we want to work with them not just on retreat, but in life, so that we can be present and balanced and wise, and be able to act skillfully and with a sense of wisdom rather than reactivity. The Buddha saw a couple of very important things about these difficulties, um, hindrances as they're called. First, that they're conditioned, and that means that they arise out of certain causes and conditions, and they come and go. And then the other important thing is that they're impersonal. They're not personal failings. They're visitors. They're really powerful energies, but they're not our inherent nature. They're not original sin. They come and go. And he had another analogy of a guest house where many kinds of different feelings are all coming and staying a while sometimes. And then they travel on. And we can allow them to visit and accept that they come without having to adopt them as permanent residents. And so it's very helpful to see that. They come in response to changes changes in conditions. And they're basic strategies, really, to try and help us find balance in life. Really, to help us, we want to find more pleasant and less unpleasant. It's very simple. It's a biological thing. It's mental reaction to when things are either pleasant 
unpleasant or neutral. We either want to grasp what's pleasant or push away what's unpleasant and maybe ignore what's neutral so we can find something more interesting and pleasant. And so that's really the sort of essence of them. And our practice is about understanding rather than trying to get rid of them. And seeing them as part of the practice and as doorways to freedom and liberation rather than as obstacles that are in our way and a mistake. We can't stop them arising, but we can change our relationship with them. And we can, because it's possible to do that, it's possible to not have them overwhelm us and run our lives, just because we can change our relationship to them. And then they have less power to take over. So the first thing is recognize that they're there. That's the most important thing. What's it like when they're there? How do they obscure our clear seeing? And equally important is to recognize what it's like when they're not there so we can really nurture the beautiful and skillful qualities. As Sally was saying the other night of patience, kindness, generosity, wisdom, joy. So we want to know when they're present and when they're absent. So we get familiar with both. We get familiar with the direct experience of both of those poles. And the Buddha had some beautiful similes, both for their presence and their absence. And the simile for the presence is you imagine there's a pool of clear water and it's possible for it to reflect everything and also for you to see all the way to the bottom. When there's desire present, it's colored with beautiful dyes and you get entranced. So that's like looking through rose-colored glasses. You're just seeing what you want and you can't see clearly. In aversion, the water is boiling and hot and it's very uncomfortable. And when there's sleepiness or torpor, it's covered with algae and it's impossible to see anything. It's all kind of grungy and slimy. And then when there's restlessness, it's like a wind is blowing it back and forth and the mind is going back and forth and around in circles with worrying and agitation and restless, anxious thoughts or body. And then when there's doubt, it's like mud everywhere and you're stuck, you can't make decisions. It's impossible also to see clearly because you're stuck in the mud of doubt. And then the simile for their absence is when you're free from desire, you're relieved of debt. We tend to think of freedom as being free to have whatever we want. And this is free from having to have whatever we want. So we're just free. There's this contentment, not needing anything other than what's here. You can feel the relief or the relaxation in that. And then if we're free from aversion, it's like recovering from an illness. And we're healthy again. We're no longer so burning or hurt inside. When there's no sloth and torpor, we're released from prison. We can actually move again. We're sort of 
the bonds have been taken off, we can move. If we're free from restlessness, it's like being free from slavery. We're not a slave to the worried mind that wants to go here and there and is anxious. Again, a sense of ease, relaxation. And then finally, free from doubt is like having crossed a dangerous desert and now we've reached the other side and we're free from not knowing what way to turn. We've arrived. So you can see how there's a sense of ease in all of that um, that we can cultivate. So I'd like to talk about some general ways of working with them and then a little bit more specifically. And obviously the first thing is to become aware of them and sometimes we're not aware that they're there. Often when we're in the middle of them, we're not. And one of the ways of seeing if they're there is to check the attitude in the mind. That's what we've been suggesting often in the sits. What's the attitude? If we notice that we're trying to create an experience or we have an agenda or we want something particular to happen, often we're practicing with desire. If we notice that we're resisting experience, usually there's aversion or we're rejecting experience in some way. If we're confused about what's happening and we don't know what's going on, obviously that's delusion. If we're caught in concerns about, am I getting it right? Am I getting it wrong? What shall I do? That's a mixture of doubt and restlessness. If we're worried about how our practice is going, usually that's restlessness. Sometimes when we're going from one story to another, restlessness is there. And we can notice also, how am I connecting to the moment? Am I connecting with curiosity and interest? Or am I connecting with aversion? What's, you know, we can feel that. Or with irritation, or with impatience, or with anxiety. How am I connecting to the mom- moment? Or with boredom? When we come back again after being lost, is it, oh shit, I was gone? Or is it, welcome back? And so we can tell whether they're present or not, just in that way. And then as we've been explaining, there are two ways of practicing. One, the shamatha practice of collecting and unifying the mind with one object, the breath or the body or sound. And then the more open style of paying attention to whatever's arising and being curious, the vipassana way. And we can use both when we're working with the hindrances. They both have advantages and both are valuable. One of the disadvantages of using the um, shamatha practice or this collecting and unifying is that it does make the mind very still and quiet and it's really useful. But as Ajahn Chah used to say, it's like putting the lid on top of smelly garbage. The garbage is covered as long as your mind is concentrated. But as soon as you leave, the gar- nothing has changed with the garbage. And I found that on the first years of my retreat practice, I would get to very still places and be quiet and peaceful and have these beautiful experiences. And then I would go out into the world and nothing really had changed. 
I still had lots of hindrances. And I began to see that it was because I wasn't really understanding how, what, how my mind was getting reactive. It was nice and calm when I could suppress them and they'd gone. But as soon as the retreat was over, there they were. And so we need a combination of both. And um, in the Eightfold Path that we've, we mentioned, there's this whole group of three of the path factors, mindfulness, eff- effort or wise energy, and concentration. And these three together we use in our practice to help work with the hindrances. And the mindfulness helps us see clearly. The concentration brings in some stability so that the mind is steady enough that we can actually be with what's here. And then we balance our energy skillfully so that we, we, wherever we put our attention is where our energy will go. And so we begin to see more skillfully where to put our attention. And we, with those three as um, our, little, our tools, it helps us be able to work with um, the hindrances in a skillful way. Sometimes it's enough to just be present. We can have this willingness to be present with relaxed attention and with kindness, those three, presence, relaxed attention, and kindness. And that can allow the energy of the state, whether it's wanting or aversion or fear, to move through and shift of its own accord. Just by being present in that way, sometimes that will happen. We're being receptive and uninvolved and just knowing this experience is here. As we were saying this morning, greed feels like this. We're just with it and we can be aware of it coming and going. But often the energies are stronger and we're swept away by them or really caught in them. And so there's... um, there's four steps that um, we find really useful in practice, and these are the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, that some of you are probably already familiar with. So the R is recognize. We recognize what's going on. What's happening in this moment? How am I caught? What is it? Version, greed, sleepiness, whichever one it is. And the A Sometimes allowance, allowing is A, but sometimes I like it being attitude. We notice the attitude that we're holding it in. Am I allowing it to be here, accepting it, or am I rejecting it? We notice which it is. And then we see if we can include it and see if we can say, oh, this too, this is what's here right now rather than resisting, objecting, or judging. So that's where having the attitude of including and allowing as best we can. doesn't mean we're liking it, but we're just acknowledging it's here. This is how it is. And then the I is becoming more intimate with the experience, investigating, becoming more intimate, being interested in, So I can be all those three, being curious about it, getting a little closer. 
What's this like right now? What are the thoughts that come with it? What am I adding to the actual experience that's here? Is there a whole future that I'm creating? Am I exaggerating? Have I, is there shame or comparing or um, identification with it? Um, noticing what the story is that's involved with it. And then seeing what it feels like in the body. How is this experience in the body? Um, one of our teachers, Arjun Suchito, um, suggests whatever the story is that's going on, can you reduce it to one word? If you could reduce the story to one word, what would that be? So you do that. What is one word? And then how does that feel in the body? What emotion is here with that? And you start to see what happens as you pay attention to that. Notice if how it changes. It might get more or less or change into something else. So we, we pay attention to it, explore it. And then the N is not identifying. Or another way of putting the N that I like is knowing but not owning. So we know the experience, but we don't make it be me or mine. It's just fear. Fear is like this. It's not my fear or my anger or my depression. It's not I'm depressed. Depression is arising. So it helps us see this is a state that's passing through. Another acronym I like is JAM. Just a mind state. Or JAMS. Just a mind state. And when we don't see it, jam is sticky. (laughs) But if we see that's what it is, then it becomes more Teflon and it can pass through. It's not so sticky. So we're not personalizing it. We're seeing it arose due to causes and conditions and now it's passing. We're not making it into the story of me, as Sally was talking about this morning. It's not about me. Often we make these difficulties into me. If, they're, if it's wonderful and we like them, I'm the greatest. If it's something difficult, I'm the most terrible one. I'm a failure, I'm this, or whatever. And um, Yvonne Rand, one of the Zen teachers, um, has this lovely phrase that um, it's still narcissistic. It's like saying, I'm the little piece of shit that's the center of the universe. <laughs> We're still, it's still all about me, even if it's a negative all about me. And so it's being able to gradually release that. So let's talk about desire, the first of these. It's that movement of the mind, that energy of the mind that's always reaching, wanting more. I want this, I want that. There's something out there that will make me happy. Leaning into the next moment. The next moment will be better, more pleasant, or whatever it is. And not all desires are hindrances. The Buddha was really talking about overcoming the desires that lead to suffering. 
not the desires that lead to compassion or wisdom or liberation or that benefit ourselves in the world, but really the ones that have that grasping energy that really obscure and contract. And you can feel that difference. You can feel the grasping energy of I need to have, I have to have, that compulsion of moving forward. And there are lots of neurobiology studies now about dopamine, and it's the anticipation of the desire that, that um, releases dopamine. And once we've got it, the dopamine falls off, and so then we want another hit. And apparently the ping, when you get a text message, is, you know, causes a, a, a surge of dopamine, and you have to check your text. And they've sort of shown that. And then if you don't check it right away, the dopamine... So it's, you're, you're, you're sort of encouraged to keep responding to the ping. And so we, many of you have... Uh, uh, people have spoken about how when you can't use your cell phone. You know, if you were to keep your cell phone in your room, for some people, it would be really hard not to check it. And all the things that we feel that compulsion to move towards. And so next time you feel a desire, any desire, and there's lots of opportunities to practice during the day with desire, whatever it is, for the bell to ring, for... Um, for food, for whatever it is that you're wanting, next time see if you can just be with the wanting energy. What's that feel like? Where is it? See if you can be with it until it disappears without giving in to the wanting. And so you can sense the... when When that wanting urge goes away, what does it feel like? What's that like? I had... um, a wonderful teaching about wanting. Years ago, when my son was small, um, I was driving him home from daycare through a very busy area of Vancouver, and it was rush hour, and he says, I'm thirsty. You have to stop for a drink. I need a drink. And I didn't want to stop for a drink. I had aversion to him asking me. And the more I you know, didn't want to, the more his wanting... I was feeding his wanting by resisting it. And so then I remembered that I'm... a practitioner, and I thought, ah. (laughs) And so I said, how big is your wanting? It's huge. Is it as big as the car? No, no, it's as big as a bus. It's huge. It fills up the whole street. It's this big. I said, wow, what's it like? It's it's terrible. My mouth is so dry. My tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. I can't (laughs) stand it. It's this big, and it's this. So he was going on and on describing this wanting, getting bigger and bigger. And we drive along, and then he sees... Um, this paper mache chicken in a store over the street. Oh, he gets distracted by that. And we get home. He runs into the house. He starts playing with Lego. He never even stops for a drink. And so what I learned from that was as long as I was resisting his wanting, it got more. If I just allowed it to come and go, it passed. And so it's, it's that capacity to let it come and go. We don't have to give in. But our culture really supports feed your desire, fulfill your desire, get it. Can we have a different relationship to it so that we can allow it to come and go without having to give in? 
And we can explore that. There's many opportunities that you'll have during the retreat to see if you can just be with that energy of desire. And we can notice that there are conflicting desires. There's the desire in meditation. We want to be mindfully present. We just really want to be mindfully present. Um, But then the mind has another desire. It wants to think about some fantasy or other. And so there's that balancing of those conflicting desires. We can notice what's conditioning my desire. And it's different from all of, for all of us. For some of us, it's external things, food, sights, sounds. Um, others of us, it's our internal imagination. It's pleasant fantasies, puzzles, stories, problem solving that catches our desire. We can really get lost in fantasies, the story of me. Sometimes when I'm lost in pleasant fantasies, I would get into this thing of, well, just five minutes, and then I'll return to the present, instead of bargaining. And we can see how easy it is to be seduced. But we're strengthening the muscles of restraint when we can just stay with the sensations and just be with it and see what happens. Sometimes the desire is conditioned by something that's unpleasant. Things are unpleasant, so we want a pleasant fantasy instead of what's unpleasant. Or maybe in our lives, we're doing a task that's unpleasant. And so we think, so suddenly into the mind pops chocolate, or some other thing that would be a distraction that would be more pleasant. Or we find ourselves watching a movie or anything other than be with the unpleasantness. So the dynamic of conditioning is that each time we gratify the sense desire, each time we give in, we're strengthening that particular pathway. So it takes recognition and motivation and patience and perseverance to be able to practice restraint and weaken that pathway. Not out of forcing, but just out of staying with. Can I be with this energy and allow this energy? We're strengthening the path of mindfulness, concentration, energy, until we discover the peace and relief of not having to have. A traditional antidote to desire is generosity is what can I give rather than what can I get? Giving ourselves the gift of patience, caring, kindness, mindfulness, giving ourselves more time when we're impatient. Rather than holding back, giving ourselves fully to the practice. Calming is another antidote. Bringing in calm. So the wanting energy gets relaxed back into calm. and We're not needing to move into the next moment. So the next of these energies is aversion, and that's rejecting experience. So it's any kind of resistance, whether it's rejecting some part of ourselves, others, experience out there, situation, wherever we're pushing away, that energetic movement that this is somehow not okay, 
give me some other experience than this. It shouldn't be this way. And it ranges from mild irritation to violence, rage. And it can include boredom and fear and um, um, depression. These different ways that we resist how life is. And it's a biological response to scan for what's wrong. We do that to make ourselves safe. It's a normal thing. But what happens is it becomes a default position to always look for what's wrong. And we compound it by causing more what we called yesterday, or this morning, I think, second arrows. So there's the situation itself that might be unpleasant. And then there's our reaction to that. And then there's our relationship to the reaction. Things get compounded. We resist. It shouldn't be this way. And so forth. One of the main antidotes is turning towards it and befriending it. So however it is, being there with kindness, whatever form of aversion it is, and including. And often with... um, with mindfulness practice, as the concentration becomes more still and there is more calm, it is easier to be with it. But when we're caught in the middle of aversion, we need to use rain a little. We need to recognize it, in- investigate it a little bit and see what's happening, what's underneath. Sometimes it can really help to use the breath as a refuge, to bring breath in. This is really hard. Fear is like this, to breathe with it, to bring awareness to the whole body, bring kindness. May I be held in kindness while this is here, really taking care of ourselves, whether there's fear or whatever it is. And it really helps to not identify with it. This is a moment of anger, It's not who I am. Anger is like this. So helpful. Just the bare experience, being there with kindness. And it helps to see, oh, anger is arising. Anger has arisen. And that reminds us that it's not permanent. It's not terminal. Yes, it's really unpleasant, but can I take care of myself while it's here? Breathing with it. Where is it in the body? Can I bring kindness and compassion and and just be gentle? The more mindfulness and stability we have, the more we're able to explore the unpleasant sensations and tolerate them and allow them to come and go without getting caught and stuck in them. And also, it helps to notice what our, what our mind is doing with it. Something really simple. Um, a friend of mine sat a retreat um, a year ago, and um, there was a lot of people coming and going early and late from the sittings, and she got really annoyed and frustrated. People keep opening and closing the door all the time, and it's really annoying, they shouldn't be doing that, and I can't meditate, and it's frustrating. And then she sat a retreat very recently where um, 
where you could sit as long as you wanted. And so people, it was acceptable for people to come and go from the room. And so exactly the same thing was happening, but she realized she was totally okay with it. She didn't mind the noise at all. And she thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Nothing is different. But because before I thought it shouldn't be happening, I couldn't stand it, and they were all inconsiderate. And now because it's okay, the noise doesn't bother me. And so we can see the context that's making something unpleasant. What, what's the belief behind it? And that can be really helpful to notice that. And we can see how am I feeding, this is another important piece, how am I feeding the aversion? In her case, she was feeding it by believing it shouldn't be happening. Um, What story am I believing in? That I can't do this and it's not possible and that I'll be like this forever. Everybody else is getting it and I'm not. What story am I believing that's feeding the aversion and the unpleasantness? When recurrent unpleasant memories keep surfacing over and over, some of you have mentioned that, each time we can be with them in a non-reactive way, in a kind way, oh, this is really hard, this, this jealousy is coming up again, or this bet- feelings of betrayal are coming up again, and we can stay with the one word, stay with the felt sense, rather than getting lost in the story. Each time we can do that, we're deconditioning it. We're deconditioning the aversion and deconditioning the hook for the story. Each time we're aversive and we get caught in it, we're feeding it and keeping it going. And so it's the more we can just tolerate discomfort, the more it deconditions. And it's, it's sort of so helpful to see that through our practice. And the other thing is, often there are unnoticed or barely noticed aversive thoughts under the surface that are kind of conditioning the mind all the time. And these are the internal narrator often that has some kind of judgmental opinion about our practice and we don't notice. Or it might have judgments about other people as well. But it's sort of very much below the surface and it's just kind of going on and on in a kind of negative way about the story of me. And it's happening very quickly, but it's still feeding the mind. And if we can notice it without judgment, that starts to decondition it. So can we be with that sort of aversiveness without aversion? So it's, it's seeing how aversion to the aversion is feeding the aversion. What, and that's, that's where we're caught. Or having some belief, I shouldn't be aversive. So we remember, oh, it's coming due to causes and conditions. And some people have more of a tendency for aversion to arise than others. Some people have more of a tendency for greed to arise than others. It's just how we are. I have a a friend who had two children. And when the little girl was born... Almost the first thing she said was more, and I want, and I like, and get me, and I need. And when the little boy was born, almost the first thing he said was, no, 
I don't like it, take it away. And so he was seeing the world through aversion glasses, rejection. And so we can see what's our particular tendency, what's our default. And gradually, with kindness, we can have that be our default. We can have friendliness be our default. And friendliness is simply befriending. It's standing with whenever we're having a difficult emotion, whether it's fear or anger or um, sadness or grief. We're just befriending. We're being with. The mindfulness is a companion and we're not lost in it. And that's the difference. We know that that feeling is here and we know that we're knowing that. So it's almost like we can see the attitude in the mind that that difficulty is passing through and the attitude in the mind is befriending. We're saying, this too. And that's helpful. So, sloth and torpor, algae, the prison. Um, we've talked quite a, li- quite a bit about this, but sloth is that lack of vitality, that kind of um, physical heaviness. The body feels heavy and lethargic. And if you think about sloths, they're sort of really deeply asleep and they're holding on to their branch and you can't unhook them. So the sloth doesn't want to be unhooked and the sleepiness is seductive. It's that sort of feeling of, I want to stay, it's nice and warm in bed, I don't want to get up in the morning. That sort of feeling of sloth, this nodding. Um, And torpor is more a sort of mental feeling of dullness and um, lack of mental energy, and it's drifty and unpleasant. And it's almost like the... Uh, battery in your flashlight is slowly running and de- running down, and so you become more and more torporous, and you start getting these dreamlike states and feeling very heavy. Basically, there's not enough energy, so it's an imbalance of that factor of energy, and we need to bring more light into the mind. Sometimes it's there because we're just tired. Sometimes it's there because there's underlying aversion or boredom. And sometimes it can help to just say, if I wasn't feeling sleepy right now, what would I be feeling? That can be helpful. It's like a withdrawing from difficulty to just shut down. We just don't want to look at it anymore. Um, It helps not to struggle with it, as we've said, just to acknowledge Oh, sleepiness is here. It's not bad, it's just how it is. Can we bring some brightness? Breathe in more deeply. Open the eyes. We've talked about that. Use your walking practice when you're not in the hall. So we're arousing. If you're in the hall, you can open your eyes, maybe look out the window. Just bring more light and energy in. You can even say, make the mind bright. Bring in brightness. Um, And it helps to just keep sustaining the energy. Even if you keep nodding off, you just keep being present. Every time you connect, you're building energy. And so it's, it's fine that there's the nodding, you just keep coming back. We're still connecting and bringing energy. Sometimes humor can help, bringing joy. There's, um... One of the antidotes that, that's mentioned in 
um, sometimes in the teaching, is to imagine that this is your last in-breath. And that's supposed to make you wake up. If this was your last in-breath, wake up. And I tried that, and all that happened for me was this little voice said, that's okay, I don't mind dying in my sleep. (laughs) That would be a good way to go. So we need to find what works for us to help bring... But I laughed, and that brought energy back, and I was awake again. So it helps to bring... It helps most of all not to fight with it, but to just know that it's balancing, and it will have its life if we can be with it with gentleness. If we get irritated with it, that leads to the next hindrance, which is worry and agitation. And we can get to kind of swing between these two, having not enough energy in the mind and then getting agitated and worried and having too much. And so just finding that balance with gentleness. So restlessness and worry um, also can be very unpleasant. It can be physical, where you feel like, i got to leave the room. I'm so restless. My body feels so agitated. i got to get out of here. Or it can be mental, and we're just worrying and anxious all the time. We just feel this um, sense of anxiety in the mind. Worrying about the past, about the future, maybe something we feel guilty about. Um, And it can really help to just stay See if you can stay with that energy. When you can, release the past, release the future. Not now, here is very helpful. Just that mantra of not now, here. Sometimes it can help to adjust the breath. Slower out-breaths bring calm. Or even to, um, I was sharing with you um, in the afternoon, I think, breathing in, calming breathing out, calming. So inclining the mind to calm can be really helpful. Standing, or sometimes walking, can really help. Sometimes it can help to have a much larger space, like you were giving a restless horse a bigger pasture. So how big is the restlessness? Ah, it would fill the whole room. Then it's not contained in the head, and it doesn't feel so intense. This is useful for any hindrance, to give it space. Just have that sense of space, so it's more diluted. It's not so intense. It's a larger container. And so with anxiety, when, we, when we're able to be with the energy of anxiety, rather than the stories that anxiety is telling, we get to see that that energy just comes and goes. On its, it just has its, ener- its life, and then it passes. And if we can just stay with just the energy of anxiety, it's so helpful. And if we can be with... The, the energy of anxiety is really the same, whatever the flavor of the story. And if we can be with one anxiety, we can be with any of them. It doesn't matter. So it's a really helpful training to be with restlessness for our lives if you have that inclination to restlessness. Doubt. Often we get really caught in the stories of doubt and it can be unnoticed and we can feel really, our practice can feel really unpleasant when we're caught in doubting. 
doubting that this is the right practice, that we're doing it right, that um, we know what we're doing. We're always checking ourselves. Am I getting it right yet? Um, Or we feel inadequate. I should have done something different. Or we can be indecisive in our lives. Um, It's painful. Comparing, a lot of comparing, this or that. And sometimes what's underneath it is fear or lack of trust. Often aversion is underneath doubt. What can help is to simply connect with experience. Keep it very simple. Just this moment. Just this moment right now. Very simple. I can know just this breath, just this step, just these sensations. So we're connecting and sustaining with the very simple movements of breath, body, sound, directly with experience. We can know what's true in this moment and that can be helpful and reconnect with confidence again. I've found it helpful in my own practice to make an intention. May the mind be free from limiting beliefs. May the mind be free from limiting beliefs. And that can be really helpful when I get caught in doubt. Ah, a limiting belief can start to release it. Sometimes the am I doing it correctly or right can actually be skillful because it helps us monitor our practice. We can see, oh, there's a lot of tension here right now. Oh, Am I striving? Oh, maybe I need to relax and let go a little bit. And we, it helps us adjust our practice. So questioning, um, there's a skillful kind of questioning and not knowing. It's when it causes us to feel tense and anxious and contracted that it's a hindrance. And you'll sense that. You'll sense that something is hindering my practice right now. Oh, it's doubt. I'm stuck. We can feel that analogy of being stuck in the mud, not knowing. Another antidote for doubt is investigation. What's really here? What's actually happening right now? What am I actually experiencing? That's rain again. And then knowing, oh, it's okay to make a mistake. I tried this. Now I'm even more tense, or I tried this, and now I'm falling asleep, I'm too relaxed. So we're not doubting ourselves, we're just seeing ourselves as exploring. It's okay to see what works in our practice. If it is just as Ajahn Chah was saying, if you go left and you end up too far in, in the field over there, then you come right a bit. You, it's fine to adjust. It's not... Um, It's not a failure. It's just seeing what might happen. And we don't take it personally. This worked. This didn't work. This was skillful. This wasn't skillful. Often the hindrances are multi-layered and our practice helps us untangle them. Desire can be covering loneliness sometimes or inadequacy. If I were to get this, I'd feel enough. Aversion can be covering fear, or it can be covering a frustrated desire. We haven't been able to have this, and so we're frustrated, now we're aversive. 
Sloth and torpor can be covering sadness or grief. Restlessness can be covering needing approval. If only I could get it right. And we keep going over here and there to try and get it right. So we get these multiple hindrance attacks, and they're all interrelated. Maybe we're caught in wanting, and now we're clinging, and now we're agitated because it hasn't come about. And the agitation feels really unpleasant, so we get aversive to that. And then we crave something else because we're aversive. And that's exhausting, so we want to fall asleep. (laughs) And so (laughs) it goes on and on. But if we can just be there with um, kindness and this mindful attention, then it starts to separate out and can we can see what's going on. We're training ourselves to sort of recognize this, um, as um, Utejaniya says, defiled condition of the mind and the feeling tone that's conditioning it, pleasant and unpleasant, whether they're conditioning greed or aversion, we can recognize that and we start to be able to see the about-to moment, the about-to-reach-for-something, the about-to-reject-something. We start to pick it up more quickly, the hindrances, and we start to get a little bit more clear about when they're present and when they're absent. And we can see them coming and going more and more quickly. And as we get more and more proficient at that, they dissolve more quickly. But whether they disappear quickly or slowly, the most important quality is sati, and particularly sati panya, mindfulness and wisdom. If we don't recognize them, then they're going to rule our actions. And a really useful assessment of our practice is not whether we're having wonderful exalted experience, meditative experiences, but are these hindrances gradually weakening? Each moment the mind is free from the hindrances, even if it's a brief moment, it's a relief and and joy, and we can appreciate those moments. Wow, there's no desire in the mind right now. Ah, ah, there's no aversion. I'm not averse to anything in this moment. Wow, I can appreciate that. And maybe I'm not sleepy either. Whoa! Not to identify with it and become the great meditator who's overcome the hindrances, but because then, all of a sudden, there'll be aversion when they come back. But just to see, oh, a moment when they're not here and appreciate that. So, in summary, this mindfulness attention, mindful attention is starving the hindrances and nourishing presence, stability, and wisdom. Um, Mindfulness plus wisdom, it said, installs the program that debugs the defilements. And so it's just this um, being able to recognize and see clearly. Sometimes we can allow the difficulty to be in the background and it will just... um, untangle on its own. We're able to say, not now, here, and it disappears. And sometimes we need to be more, bring in more investigation and more presence and take care of ourselves while they're present.
And the most helpful thing is the continuity of our practice. Really, the more continuous our practice is, the less gaps there are for the hindrances to sneak into. So the more we can just keep this gentle, easeful, mindfulness presence, the more we'll be able to um, release them. When we're not aware, it's the hindrances and habit that make our choices. When we are aware, wisdom is making the choices. And through our practice, we can know that the mind can be filled with these forces of greed or aversion, delusion, whatever they are, and we don't have to act on them. So the visitors can come, but when there's, through our practice, we've changed our relationship to the experience. And that's no small thing, and it's a gift to the world. So may you be free from the hindrances this evening, and um, thank you for your attention. And I have to confess that I had two competing desires. One was to finish by 8.30, and the other was to include the things I wanted to say. (laughs) So I was overcome by greed. (laughs) Greed visited. So enjoy walking, and we'll be back here at 9 o'clock for some chanting, and then end of our evening.